another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Dictated as, as most of the time is the case from my personal mobile studio, which is my Jetta Diesel TDI. As so I make my commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas of about, well, it's about 50 miles we spend together each morning. Today is Monday, January 12th, and this is episode 120 if I've got my count back right on of the Survival Podcast. January 12th marks a point at which we're pretty close to right about six months into the show. Six months, 120 episodes, from one listener, which was myself, to 2,000, 3,000 listeners a day. And it's all been made possible by you guys. So I just want to take a minute again. And any one of you have said, you know, hey, check this show out or posted a link in your blog or done anything to share my show with other people, thank you very much for the success that you've made the show, because it's really all about you guys. It's not about me at all. I'm just the communicator here. Uh, a lot of the information that I get is available to anyone. A lot of the information that I get is from my audience, and I'm pretty good at communicating it back out. Uh, so it's not that I'm the, cert- the survival expert. It's that I'm the host of the Survival Podcast, and we use our collective wisdom together. Uh, on that note, please visit our forum. You want collective wisdom? There are several hundred uh, people there that can help you figure out the answers to the questions that you most want answered. And uh, the Internet has brought together a lot of collective wisdom, and forums are one form of that. So please avail yourself, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click on forum. You'll see our forum. If you want to send me feedback from today's show or anything else, email it to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. That is jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Please do not post that anywhere online. Uh, I do not need any more spam than I already get. You can also comment on individual episodes at the site of the survivalpodcast.com. Today's show is going to be another listener feedback show where I'm going to answer some listener questions and, and things like that. Real quick, I want to talk to you, though, about something that I said I think might be true back in December, and I learned while I was on vacation absolutely seems like it is true. I talked about a plant on an episode uh, of the show back around the 22nd or 23rd of December, somewhere around there, called Amaranth. And I talked about a lot of other lesser-known crops and plants. But I talk about how amaranth was like this wonder plant. It provided a grain that could be ground into a flower. It provided a grain that could be used as a cereal grain. A grain that could be mixed with other grains. It was more nutritious than barley, wheat, rice, any other grain, even if they were left in their whole grain uh, status. On top of that, the plant when young could be used for a source of salad greens or sautéed braised greens. Even the large plants, if you pick the newest growth, those small leaves could also be used that way, kind of like a spinach substitute. On top of this, not only did the grain store well, it could be parched, and it would pop like a small popcorn snack. So it had different ways that it could be utilized, even in its rawest form. On top of that, the plant was large, so it could be used for uh, building materials if you wanted to create a quick overnight structure. For instance, amaranth stalks would have done that. But it could also be stripped out and used for uh, weaving and things like that. On top of this, the red varieties produced a dye that could be used to dye cloth. And it just didn't make sense that a plant with this much going for it that was native to much of North America, all of Central 
Central America and much of South America that would grow well despite the, the weather and the climatic conditions season to season because it was highly adapted to location disappeared. And, and, and my only reason that I believe that this thing could have disappeared was based on what I'd seen on a show called The Little Ice Age. Now on The Little Ice Age what had happened was uh, there was a time in our history not that long ago when the Earth's temperature dropped by about 4 or 5 degrees on average per year. And there was even some times there that were called uh, years without a summer. And agriculture suffered and because of that you know, thousands and millions of people died. It's when the bubonic plague happened, and it was, you know, the plague was driven by how much sickness and weakness was already there. And all of these bad things happened. Well, it turned out that there were a lot of people that died during this time frame that didn't have to. One was the group of people that we refer to as the Vikings that had settled in Greenland. And those guys had settled in Greenland, and then they look around them, and there's still guys called Inuit, basically what we call in North America an Eskimo. And they referred to these people in their own language, I don't remember the word, but it basically meant ugly little people. But these Inuit had these really sophisticated harpoons made with ivory tips. This allowed them, when the Vikings were huddled up and freezing in their little stone you know, houses, to go out on the ocean and hunt large animals like very large seals and whales that were active during these cold times. And as the Ice Age came in, those cold times grew and grew, the Vikings all died, the Inuit lived. So, because they looked down their nose at what they considered a lower class of people, they died, and that lower class of people survived. And then the French did something quite similar. Uh, during this time frame, they started bringing back from the Americas a lot of things, and one was the potato. They brought back this ugly little root crop called the potato, and most of Europe snapped to this right away and went, hey, this thing grows underground. Even if it's rainy and cold and it's rotting our wheat crops and they're you know, being destroyed and, and all these things are happening, warfare is going on and people are burning our wheat. If we grow potatoes and the weather hits or somebody burns it, the tuber is still underground. We can still dig it up at harvest time. It'll be down there. It'll keep coming back no matter what you do to it, and we'll live. The French said, no, we're not going to eat that stuff. So they refused for centuries to adopt the potato into their agricultural system, and millions of them died because, again, a lower class of people. All right. said, so Amaranth maybe have followed a similar path, similar path. Well, here you go, folks. Baker Creek Seed Catalog. I'm reading about a, a variety of uh, red amaranth from Mexico. And what it says in one little sentence in there, uh, after it explains how this is a historic you know, uh, variety had been grown for centuries, blah, 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 that when the Spanish, and specifically the Catholic, uh, influence took over Mexico that the natives were banned from growing amaranth. They weren't even, not only would they not adopt it, they wouldn't let the natives grow it. That's what killed amaranth. That's what destroyed the ability for our nation to have that in our quiver of agriculture. Bias, prejudice, ignorance, and a belief that one class of people was lower as a form of life than another. And I want you to think about that as you're making your preps, as you're making your decisions, as you're deciding who to listen to and who not to listen to as you go forward. Consider that in this one instance here, this plant is pretty much a wonder plant. And had we began selective breeding of it with modern agriculture and things like that, we might have some really, really impressive varieties of it today to be working with. And it might go a long way uh, toward preventing a lot of future famines. And it may have gone a long way to doing things like preventing the Dust Bowl. Uh, if you want to, there's a, a show out that came out this week. I DVR'd it. See if you can find it. It's called The Black Blizzard. And it talks about the Dust Bowl and how we created it for ourselves. 
uh, during the Great Depression and, and the high plains. And, and, you know, because we didn't grow native species, because we had to grow these uh, cultivated species of, of wheat. So let's, uh, it's not really, uh, again, that's not really, because see, I was right type thing. That's just, hey, I want you to really think about this as, as you decide who to listen to, who not to listen to. And whenever you start to hear the general societal scoffing, if you think of, uh, you know, going political just for a second, Ron Paul. Uh, Ron Paul was probably the greatest hope this country ever had as a, a potential president. And the media and collectively society scoffed at him because he was willing to speak the truth. And uh, please think about that as you're making decisions going forward. Okay, my for- first question today uh, came from somebody who's also been watching what they've called Apocalypse Week or something like that on Discovery or History or I think it's History Channel uh, that's running this. And I DVR'd a lot of these things myself, but I did DVR the episode the person uh, contacted me about. And they said uh, they watched a, a, a documentary, two-hour documentary called The Seven Signs of the Apocalypse and how they're showing how all of the things that come from the book of Revelation, the seven, you know, the seven bowls and the seven trumpets and the pale horse and the, the black horse and, and all these other things uh, can be explained in, in modern terms with plagues and meteors. And, uh, in fact, they even talked about what's called a... Uh, a gamma ray burst and how that could actually darken the planet, make the sky like sackcloth, all that stuff from Revelation. And what I thought of the documentary, if I'd seen it, here's, here's the reality. I saw the documentary, and uh, I think they're reaching and they're grasping. And I think we have bigger things to worry about than is it the end times. Because if it's the end times, as it's prophesied in the Christian religion, don't really matter, folks. Doesn't really matter. All your preps ain't going to matter. So uh, it's not something I would sit around worrying about. In fact, uh, I'm not a religious man big time, folks. I'm really not. But I do know enough about the Bible to know that uh, as far as that occurrence goes, that Jesus said that no man will know the time save the Father, which to me even means I don't know. That's what Jesus was saying when he said that to me. He doesn't know. The Father knows. There's three in one spirit, you know, the trilogy, whatever you want to say. But Jesus would speak of himself as as the Son of Man and, and the Son of God, and but would draw a line and say there are certain things that are maybe known to one part of the body that are not known to the other, and that seemed to be one of them. So I'd let that go right now. Now here's the thing about that show. A lot of the stuff that they talked about are real threats, real threats either uh, on a, a semi-global scale or even a global scale, uh, or a lot of stuff on a reach scale. They talked about a lot about earthquakes, you know, and all these earthquakes that are prophesied. Well, there's always been earthquakes. There always will be earthquakes. That's how I feel about that. But if you live in a zone that's potentially damaged by earthquakes and resulting tsunami, yeah, it's something you got to pay attention to. They talked a lot about um, potential for bioterrorism or even a lot of the biological research is being done, just some of this stuff getting loose and laying waste to the planet. Uh, all the things that were in that show, if you've seen it, are legitimate threats. I just think when you're trying to tie each... It was like they went through every threat that we face and tried to tie it back to something prophesied in the Bible. And I think you're just making a little bit of a stretch there. Now, if your faith is that you believe that, that's okay. And uh, I'm not putting your faith down. I'm not going to. I never will.
will. I respect your faith. And I'm not even saying your faith is wrong. I'm just saying this document, this documentary was overreaching the boundaries of reality by trying to connect the dots. And it was done to make the show entertaining and make people have an emotional response that watched it to go, hey, this could be true. Overall, it was a decent show. If you want to watch it, go ahead. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, now, the next question was also about television. Um, There's a show that I actually like to watch quite a bit. I don't think it's very grounded in reality, but I enjoy it. It's called 24, uh, Kiefer Sutherland stars in it. I think it's their sixth series. And uh, this person watched uh, the show last night, which was the uh, beginning of the new season, and sent me an email that I got this morning. Now, summarizing the plot line so far, without giving it away, if you tape it, like to watch it all at once, um, I'm giving you a minor spoiler warning here. You probably could watch the show, and it it won't matter. I'm not really going to give away anything that critical. Uh, but if you want to understand my answer to this question, you'll need to listen to this. If you want to fast forward through it, you may because you know if you're a 24 addict, that I know some people tape the whole season and watch it all at once, like a marathon. But um, Basically, the, the, the plot line is that some terrorists have gotten a hold of a device that allows them to hack through the central firewall system of the United States and gives them access to everything. The air traffic control, the water system, distribution system, electrical grid, you name it. If it's controlled by computers centrally, this firewall lets them in. Not only does it let them in, it lets them in where they can't be seen. They can take over individual parts of it at will, shut down or change or alter. And then one of the things they did on the show was give different instructions to an aircraft. And I won't tell you exactly what happened. Again, I don't want to do a spoiler for you, but they were able to make airplanes go where they wanted them to go. All right? And the government knows that this has been done, but here's the twist. The, 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 the firewall is so complex it would take months to completely recode. And they can't. there's no way to stop them until they find them and get their hands on this device. All right. The question was, do I think something like this could happen? The answer, this way, this big, no. Absolutely, positively, no. I don't think it could happen. And the reason is I don't believe that our government and uh, our intelligence agencies and everything else are so stupid is to have one central point of access to all of these systems that once infiltrated could not be reversed. Just doesn't make any sense at all. I would believe that there are multiple layers and multiple levels of security and that there's partitions of security so that no matter what you did, no matter how badass of a hacker you were, that you hacked into the electrical grid system, it's not going to also give you access to the air traffic system and then give you access to the water systems. right? Where you can turn valves and stuff with a few keystrokes. But do I think that any one of those systems are vulnerable in a time of war, be it from a terrorist act or a straight act of warfare? Extremely. And I think it's one of the reasons we have to prep, and I'm kind of looking forward to some of the implications that will be uncovered in this season of 24. Uh, if you've never watched 24, you know, you may want to, they'll, they'll probably rebroadcast the first two episodes or something. You might want to just go ahead tonight, they're going to show the next two episodes. And the way this thing works, there's 24 episodes, each one represents an hour in an individual day. And uh, so this might, if you're a survival minded person, you might enjoy this season. 
Uh, just expanding a little bit, though, on some of the threats. If you think about it, and I know I've taken some heat for being a little lackadaisical, I guess, with my aspects of water storage. And, and again, I'm not. I just think that some things maybe come before massive water storage or massive water procurement methods. In other words, if you have $5,000 worth of debt and it's going to cost you $5,000 to put in a deep well uh, with solar redundancy so you'll always have water to your house that's tied to the water grid already, um, do you get a bill for 30 bucks a month for, for water, you're probably better off taking care of the debt first. Right. That doesn't mean you don't throw up some rain catch, throw store some water in your closets and things like that. It just means that trying to make sure you have 10,000 gallons of water on hand while you still have all these other financial problems doesn't make sense. But if someone is able to contaminate the water supply, and not with some biological agent, just if someone is able to do things like start pumping sewage from one side of the system into the other and pumping sewage back into the system to contaminate the water. Think of the damage that could do. If someone is able to hack into some portion of our electrical grid and shut it down, think of the damage that can do. And there are more than one way for this to occur. Could it be done from terrorists or uh, a malicious government hacking into us? Yes. It could also be done from a major solar storm has the potential to shut down our electrical grid. That's the reality. That's not foil hack conspiracy stuff, folks. It's not, and that's one of those ones that it's not an if. You know, that's not one of those. It's not if. It's when. There'll be a solar storm big enough to do it because I think you're a little bit of a stretch there. We've had a lot of solar storms since we built the electrical grid. It hasn't shut them, shut the whole grid down yet, but it's certainly a, po- a possibility with even a given level of probability that that could occur someday. So. I think that shows like 24 or like Jericho, which I think is coming back on, and all these shows that talk about terrorism and threats to our survival, threats to our governments, uh, all of these shows have a value in awakening the conscience of people to, hey, we're not as bulletproof as we think we are. The means by which they come to an end are usually a little bit, over the top, and there's a reason. They have to create a bad guy that can be stopped, and they have to create a sense of urgency that this has to be done, in the case of 24, in one day, or it's all over. All right, And it makes for great theatrics, but it doesn't make for, for grounding reality. So, you know, take shows like that, extrapolate from them, and see what you can learn. But above all, ask yourself, okay, if this did occur... What would be the ramifications to society? What would be the ramifications to my region? What would be the ramifications to me as an individual and my family? And I think that way those shows are very, very useful. Um, Changing direction, pretty big change of direction here. I recently got an email from somebody pointing out a thread on the forum I'd actually already answered, um, but I talked about in the past growing potatoes in a stack of tires. And this person was concerned that maybe some chemicals from the tire could infiltrate and damage the potato. I'll give you a couple different answers to this. And if you've never heard of this technique before, maybe I'll summarize it real quick. The concept of growing potatoes in hills is old, and it increases their productivity. In other words, you have a flat piece of ground, you plant some potatoes, they start to grow. Once the plant gets to a certain length, you start to mound the dirt up around it. You keep doing that, and every time you mound the dirt around the potato plant, it sends out more runners and it produces more tubers. 
So the same amount of ground produces more potatoes. Well, somebody not that you know long ago, because tires aren't that old, went, hey, you know, tires hold dirt. They planted a potato plant in a tire, and when it grew up to a certain level, they threw another tire on, and they built their stack that way. And then when it came time to harvest the potatoes, and the potato plant died, they cut the top of the potato plant off. They started pulling tires off, and the potatoes just fell out. They said, ain't that cool? Well, you know, the the question then is, well, tires are built with chemicals and can they leach out and all. My, my initial feeling is, number one, these people build these, these houses called earth ships and they build the walls out of tires. And I think if there was a threat, these guys would have uncovered it because the kind of person that puts the money and effort it takes to build the self-sufficient home known as an earth ship is really about as far out on the eco-friendly side of things as possible. If they're comfortable living in a house made out of tires, then I'm pretty comfortable eating a potato out of a stack of tires. I will advise you this. When you get a hold of your tires, put on a good pair of gloves, keep them from touching your body, get a good uh, detergent and scrub the heck out of them and get all the tire dirt off them with water and soap. There's a reason. Tire dirt, if you get tire dirt in your clothing, it stays in your clothing. It is probably, next to like coal slush, one of the worst dirts out there. So you want to make sure your tires are clean uh, if you're going to be handling them. But other than that, I, I don't worry about it at all. My other statement is, if you really are, again, my show has always been about here's what I think. Now you got to do what you want. There's, there's no reason not to use the concept. You could build yourself a series of stacking boxes that you could use instead of tires. Uh, there, you know, let your I saw a guy on YouTube that basically got one of those little bamboo um, uh, mats and turned it into, you know, rolled it in a roll and joined it together and used it as a container and grew potatoes in there. So, you know, just use the concept if you're not comfortable with the tire itself. It could be any type of uh, arrangement that makes simply stacking and growing things easier and makes harvesting easier and allows you to just simply pile dirt in and pull, pull the, the layers off. So... Uh, I wouldn't worry about it, but if you do, there's other ways to use the technique. I got another question from a person that basically said, Jack, uh, my instinct is that you think that this is a pretty bad uh, economic recession. Uh, in fact, it might even become a depression, a true depression. Um, but you don't think it's, you know, quote, the big one, unquote. That it's not the, uh, the thing that will send society into a cascade failure, and it's not the one we've all been worried about in the survivalist community. It's something we will in time recover from. Is that true? And if so, why do you think that? Good question. Um, first of all, you're right. I don't think this is the big one. This is the this is the economic problem that will send us into a societal meltdown. Uh, I think there's too many systems of redundancy in place for that to happen with economics alone. I think that it's a very weak point for us, and some other things could happen at the same time. And if certain things align themselves, it could become the big one. Uh, we, if you know, I think the jobless rate's like seven point something percent right now. That number climbing to 10% is not out of the question for me right now. One in 10 people without a job. Uh, It may go higher than that. 10, 11, 12%, I see that as kind of, right now, based on everything I've looked at, the economic indicators and things, that seems to be kind of a floor for how bad those things can get. But if we get into that position, all right, and then some 
sort of terrorist attack impacts us at that point of weakness, or some sort of major series of national disasters hits us, if we had something like a solar storm knock out the grid, all of those things are bad, but when you put them with a down economy together, they can become a real, real uh, problem, something that could create that downward spiral. And, and as I've always said, I never expect the societal breakdown thing, if it does occur, to be a splat. You know, where it's just like one day everything seems okay, the next day, boom, it's over, lights out, right? It could. But even if, you know, uh, even if the, the, the concept of lights going out with a grid failure or something happens, that's not going to create an immediate societal breakdown. It's going to start a system, a process in place where some people go nuts and some people try to hold it together. And slowly, the systems that keep the same people from going out and stealing from others break down to the point where i got to feed my family. And if I didn't store any food or anything, you know, I don't want to steal from a warehouse. I don't want to loot. I don't want to riot. But if I'm looking at my kids and they're starving and that's my only way to save their lives, I'll do just about anything to keep my kids alive. And that, when that basal instinct the society takes over, that's when you have that breakdown. Uh, so, no, I don't think this is the one, but I think that we should always be preparing for the potential of having that level of a breakdown. But I don't think we go away from common sense preparation first, which is the very first disaster that you prepare for is one that affects you and not your neighbor, losing your job, something like that. Having some reserve money, some reserve food, all of this low on debt, all of these things, that's still where it starts. And if you take the approach of starting there and working, eventually you should build a lifestyle that even if it's a major breakdown, you're about as well prepared as any you know reasonably uh, sane individual can hope to be. I've also been getting a disturbing number of uh, emails from people that are saying, you know, I just lost my job. It, it happened. Just like everybody said it could happen, well, I just got the news, or my wife just got the news, or my husband just got the news, and what do we do now? And when people send me an email like that, I generally try to answer something. I try to give them some advice based on the information they've given me. Now, the question is really far too broad for me to answer to anybody because I don't know your life situation. I don't know what kind of training you had. I don't know what kind of background you had. I don't know what your local economy is like, how easy it is to find a job. There are certain generalities that I can say, though, if you get into the situation of losing your job that, that are, are pretty common. And they're not going to sound a lot like Dave Ramsey or... Susie Orman or any of these so-called financial experts. Because finances, in some ways, when it comes to your investments and things like that, uh, or getting loans or credit, are the least of your worries at this point. If you just look at a typical family, a mom and a dad, and they both work, and they got two kids, and mom is uh, making about Twenty-five to $30,000 a year, then, you know, they're just the numbers to suit your situation, but that's a pretty median income for a lot of women out there today that don't really have a college degree or anything, and they're just kind of working whatever kind of job they can find while the kids go to school. And dad, dad is uh, uh, upper middle class, blue collar, hardcore worker, guy that, you know, puts a lunchbox in the back of his truck every day and goes off to work. He works a lot of overtime. He does everything he can to earn a good living with construction or you know utility work or whatever it is, and he makes about sixty. 
Now, let's say he shows up for work one day and they go, there's not enough work and his 60000 is gone overnight. Now you're left with mom's twenty-five. And you've gone from an income of eighty-five to an income of twenty-five. That's a scary situation to be in. It really is. And it's easy to panic. So my first piece of advice is don't panic. Now let's say this is even worse. You come home and when he says, honey, guess what? She says, honey, guess what? I did too. I've lost my job as well. We now have a zero-sum income. The reality is, unless you guys haven't worked at least six months, I think it is, or a full year of continuous employment, both of you will be drawing some unemployment. Um, I think in Texas you could draw up to like 450 bucks a week. Uh, it might be less than that. I'm not really sure what it is. But there's some level of income that you should be able to acquire. And I've got another just an idiot here, folks, just a complete freaking moron that doesn't know how to drive. Anyway, um, so there should be some income coming in from unemployment. It's probably not enough to pay all your bills. What you need to do is, is, is a multifold attack on the situation. You need to look at this and go, these systems, the economic, the debt, uh, the distribution, all of the systems that I'm dependent upon have just declared war on me and my family. I must now fight back with the mentality of I have to survive. Right? Nothing could be more of a survival situation than your family being threatened with being thrown out of their house, not being able to pay their bills, not being able to put food on the table, all these good things. Now, hopefully, you've been preparing. You have some reserve cash put away. You've minimized your debt. Um, all these other things have already... You have some food stored. If you have six months of stored food, well, you know, you could cut your grocery bill in half for a year. Right, But a lot of these emails come from people that like they're getting into this now because they saw the writing on the wall, but they didn't have a lot of time to prepare, or they haven't prepared at all. And they're saying, well, what the heck do I do? Don't tell me to go out and store food. I can't pay my bills now. The first thing you need to do is look for another job. And I know that sounds obvious, but it amazes me how often a Susie Orman doesn't say, hey, go find another job. Right? I saw her on TV today talking about this subject right before I left the house. And I thought to myself, hey, the first thing you tell somebody to do is go try to replace their income or replace a portion of their income. Now, I'm a big believer on don't take a job. Uh, at least at the very beginning, unless it pays better than the, the unemployment that you're going to be collecting, because they'll take away your unemployment. Uh, but odds are you can probably find something somewhere. If you have to take two or three jobs, you do it. You do whatever it takes to get back on your feet. The big thing is not to be arrogant with your value and say, well, you know, I used to do X, Y, and Z, and I made 60 or I made 80 or I made $100,000 a year to do it, and I should be able to find equivalent level employment. Well, your equivalent level employment just went away. So be being willing to do what it takes is important. It may be a very good time for you and your family to look at do we really live in the place that we need to live in geographically? It's just time to consider a move. If you've got to get new jobs anyway, maybe you can find new jobs in a place that's more safe, more stable, more in line with what you want for your life right now at this time in your life. For some people, that may be it's time to get out in the sticks. I lost my job. I do have some money saved up. Real estate market sell sucks, but I don't know that much on this house. I can get some money out of it. It's time for me to move myself out into the sticks. Right? For some people, it may be moving to another suburban or city life. 
because you need to earn income for a while and maybe there's an opportunity for you somewhere. So evaluation of your opportunities is extremely important at this time. The biggest thing is keeping your head and don't sit around and say, I'm just going to take some time off and, and, and rest and wait. You know, if you have to have a day or two, that's fine. A day or two and you're done. That's time to go into action after a day or two at most. You want to go to the bar, drink a few beers, hang out with some guys who lost their job too, shoot the breeze, come home, take a nap, you know, sleep it off, whatever. One to two days maximum and that, that's it. Now it's time to go into a major action plan. You now have a new job. Your job is to find a way to replace your income. I don't believe that the situation is so dire that there's any place in America where a person that really wants to work and really wants to do whatever it takes can't find a way to survive yet. So until that changes, don't make any excuses. Just do whatever it takes. And understand, doing what it takes often means doing what you do not wish to do or do not want to do. It might mean pulling your kids out of a school and moving them across the country or across the state. It might mean doubling up with a family member. It might mean bringing in a family member into your home that will help with part of your expenses. There's a lot of things that it might mean that you might look at and go, I don't want to do that. A survivalist doesn't say, what do I want to do? A survivalist says, what do I need to do to make the best of a given situation? So if you use that mentality, that's my best starting place for you. And it's harder for me to go any deeper than that with anybody uh, without knowing very specifically, you know, what's your income level, what's your potential for work, where else have you looked, you know, what's your family situation, all these other things you need to know. This is an individual choice. But the commonality is keeping your head, having a plan, working a plan, and getting yourself back into as much stability as you can, as quickly as you can. Don't believe people that say, well, if you take a job that's not what you were doing before, you'll end up with a career shift and you'll never be able to go back to what you used to do. That's bull crap. All right. I guarantee if I wanted to go back in sales, uh, which was my career historically for over 10 years, I would have no problem going back into sales or sales management today. I don't want to, but I could. My career shift was probably the best thing I ever did for my life, so look at it as an opportunity as well. And sometimes you have to take a big hit. And here's what I'm talking about. I was a six-figure earner. When I made a career shift, my first salary went from six figures down to $45,000 a year. That's a big hit. That's a big hit. That's a hit of more than a lot of people make. You might be thinking, oh, I don't want to throw a pity party for you. I'm not telling you that so you'll feel bad for me. I'm telling you that just because it's reality. And no matter how bad you think your situation is, there's always a way to adapt, improvise, and overcome. We've got people on the forum that are on you know, $1,000 a month in disability. $12,000 a year. And they figured out in one year's time how to get themselves out of the city and into a self-sufficient lifestyle on $12,000 a year. Folks, you can work part-time at a daycare center and make $12,000 a year. If they can do it, you can do it. So that's the best advice I can give you there. Another question I got, I think this will be the last one for today, um, has been simply that it seems like I put a lot of emphasis at times on like calling your senators, calling your congresspeople, calling your state senators, your state congresspeople, and, and telling them how you feel about issues and, and fighting things and trying to get whatever it is you want done done. And when I do that, 
and I'll say, hey, call your congressman and tell him to support the Second Amendment. I hope you'll call your congressman and tell him to support the Second Amendment, but however you feel is how you have to voice your opinion. Otherwise, democracy doesn't work. But the question was, do you think it even matters anymore? Don't you think that our political establishment is a lost cause at this point? And my answer to that is yes and no. I think at the very highest levels, the people that are permitted by our media and by the money that circulates to run for things like president and become things like speaker of the house and, and, and hold office in very high level committees and get appointed to cabinets and stuff, I think it's pretty much a rigged system at this point. I think that the, uh, the behind the scenes, the men behind the curtain with the money control that a great deal. If not 100%. And if you doubt that, all you have to do is say to yourself, since the election ended, where do Barack Obama and George Bush disagree? Barack Obama wants troops out of Iraq in 18 months. Troops are coming out of Iraq in 18 months unless something drastically changes. That agreement's been made with the Iraqi government and the United States. Now, there'll still be a little gaggle of, of troops there, but the actual troops that do the job, kick indoors, stuff like that, they're gone by August, all right, of next year. That's the plan now, right? Not August this year, August 20, 2010. Complete agreement. Uh, the auto bailers need to be bailed out. Barack Obama wants them bailed out. Bush is on board. All right. The, uh, the the tarp money, the seven hundred billion that turned into eight hundred fifty billion. Bush wants it done. Obama wants it done. And every big issue that's come up that the president elect, who seems to think he's already in office, is is trying to get done and and, and set up. It seems like the Bush administration is helping with. Now there's something to be said for okay, you're going out. You don't impede your successor, but it's another thing to be you know cheerleading him on and trying to get things done. And if you think about the people that ran for office, Al Gore, George Bush, John Kerry, George Bush, all right, John McCain, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Bob Dole, George Bush Sr., Bill Clinton, all the way back to George Sr.'s um, administration. There hasn't been a damn bit of difference in the candidates. Now, there's been some individual ideological differences, but when it comes to basically throwing our nation into debt, screwing everything up, they've pretty much handled things the same way. Even on the big issues that are supposed to be big divides between us, on things like immigration. You know, George Bush and John McCain are as an open border administration as, as you could want. I mean, I'm not a Bill Clinton fan, but I'd say Bill Clinton was less of an open borders president than George Bush was. You know, it's just the, the you know, and there's the other side. The immigration bill shut down. Shut down because people like you pick up the phone and call people. And why? Because the Senate of 100 and the House of over 500 are too many people for them all to be completely in the tank. And some of them want to keep their jobs. And some of them that are in the tank are saying, you know what, I'm in the tank, but if I don't yield on this one... I can't be here to be in the tank for the next one. So I'm going to have to yield on this one because my people are going to throw my ass out of office. And I don't care 
then the next person will be in the tank. I care that it won't be me. So their desire for self-preservation comes into play. And it's at the Senate and the congressional levels, at the federal level, and definitely the Senate and the House levels at the state level. Most people have no idea that they even have a state senator or a state rep. Those clowns will listen to you a lot more than the federal guys will because there's a lot less people that have to vote no on them to get rid of them. So I do think it matters. Now, are you going to change the world by making phone calls? No. What you do is you impede the negative progress. All right? All the things that add us to more taxation, that make us more dependent, all of these issues can be slowed down in their implementation simply by picking the phone up once or twice a month. So that's why I challenge people to do that. Once a month, call those five clowns. Your five clowns are your state senator, your state rep, your two federal senators, and your federal rep. Call them once a month at least. Five people, one minute each, one issue. This is how I feel. This is what I expect out of you. If you don't do it, I can no longer support you. You just do it. Give them your name. Tell them what zip code you're from. Form a history of being someone that says, I'm opposed to this. And get other people to do it. Yes, I do think it matters. Like I said, it's not going to change the world. It's not going to alter everything. We're not going to win every battle. But one thing that the extremely socialist side of politics has learned in this country that the people that are more conservative or more libertarian have not. That you're not going to win every battle, but you keep fighting. And you take a little and a little and a little and a little. And over years you look back and go, there's a lot. All right? We need to do that in this community as well. Survivalism is not all about individuality and community. On some levels, it's about ensuring the survival of your neighbors. And folks, if you live in California, uh, even if you don't realize this, the people that live in Florida are your neighbors because they're your national neighbors. They are part of the United States of America. The people in Canada are your neighbors to the north. The people in Mexico are your neighbors to the south. And if we don't stabilize that entire region from Mexico to Canada, there's a threat to us all eventually. So I think that kind of wraps up the show today. And I hope it's given you some different things to think about, some different ideas and some variety. I have an interesting show planned for tomorrow. Please tune in. Uh, we're going to be back to giving something away in the Listener Appreciation Contest tomorrow. Uh, I have a DVD to give away from Tactical Response tomorrow. So tune in for an opportunity to win that. There will only be one prize tomorrow. And I think most of you guys know how the game is played. Uh, if not, tune in tomorrow. Join the Listener Appreciation Contest in advance if you have not already done so. Again, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.